You're listening to episode 127 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? In case you missed our huge announcement this week, we just launched our featured article section on our site, a brand new addition to 88 Cups of Tea. Many of you have requested for even more content, especially blog posts, and it's finally here. For our inaugural piece, the wonderful Sarah Holland, author of Everless, wrote about the querying mistake we're all making. It's a really inspiring and eye-opening piece written from Sarah's perspective as both an author and a literary agent on how to approach querying. Her article has already helped a ton of writers in our community. One of our members in our private Facebook group wrote, This article was balm to my worried writer's heart. Everything was just lovely. Another member wrote, this is now one of my favorite querying articles. So good. To read Sarah's article, head over to 88cupsofteacom and click on the featured article link on our main page. Now on to the next part of our intro, I want to say a massive thank you to all of you who left a rating and a review for 88 Cups of Tea. I know it's a ginormous process to get through all the steps and it means so much to us that you took the time. I'm not exactly sure how, but I hear that the combination of having our listeners subscribe to us on iTunes and also leave a rating and a review for our podcast does something to the iTunes algorithm and it's supposed to help make our podcast more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before. A lot of time and love goes into making this podcast and 88 Cups of Tea what it is today. So thank you for taking the time to help us grow our community. A special thank you to our listener, Sam Beltran, who recently rated us five stars and wrote, Yin and her creative family have made such an amazing podcast. I've been in a writing slump for the last few months, really just an all-around slump. I started listening to 88 Cups of Tea just to hear the perspectives of some of my favorite authors, but those few episodes I listened to were so inspiring that I just started binging on all the episodes. Yin's interview style is personal and informative at the same time. I love how she connects with the author using her own experiences and delves into creating a rapport with the author instead of just asking questions. Yin, the experiences of the author she interviews, and her entertaining interview style are all amazing. 88 Cups of Tea has been more inspiring than I ever expected it to be. I definitely recommend this podcast to anyone out there who enjoys young adult literature or anyone who's dreaming of being a writer out there trying to drag themselves up from their bootstraps and get to work. I've already told all my friends to start listening to 88 Cups of Tea and I'm imploring you to do the same. Sam, you are wonderful, you know that? Thank you so, so much for that redonkulously sweet and thoughtful review. I so appreciate you taking the time to leave your beautiful review, and I'm so grateful to have you in our community. Now on to our guest, I am so happy to have Rhoda Bayesa on our show. Rhoda is a children's editor at a publishing house and is the author of Empress of a Thousand Skies and Blood of a Thousand Stars. The New York Times book review wrote, Intergalactic political intrigue, family betrayal, and coveted thrones feature in the space opera story. Real-world analogs and social commentary make Empress of a Thousand Skies an important and relevant novel. In today's episode, we chat all about Rhoda's love for action movies and how that led her to writing novels. We get into her experiences as an editor at a publishing house and how that helped her explore the other sides of the publishing world. 
We also discuss how being an editor helped to improve Rhoda's own writing and what it's like going through the editing process of her book through the eyes of an editor. We dive into the details about her novels Empress of a Thousand Skies and Blood of a Thousand Stars. From the inspiration behind the characters, to the world building, and to closing out your characters and ending your story. Further into our conversation, we talk about how joining a writing community you trust can help you receive constructive feedback on your writing, why it's important to separate yourself and your self-worth from the revision process of a first draft, and why we should seek professional opinions during our research process. We chat realistic word counts per week, why we should be writing consistently throughout the week, and how that helps us stay intimate with our characters and strengthens our character building. We also cover why it's crucial to put aside an editing day each week to prevent yourself from editing as you're writing. Rhoda is creating a writing prompt exclusively for our 88 Cups of Tea listeners, so be sure to look out for our announcements about it on our social media. She's also taking over our Instagram account today, and she'll be taking us through how she gets her word count in while having a day job. And she'll also be showing us where she writes and more fun things. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea. Now let's dive right in. Hey, everyone. We have Rhoda here with us today. Rhoda, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have you on. Rhoda and I actually met in person in New York City during this panel recently in February. It was so lovely meeting you in person. I hear your name everywhere. I see you everywhere on social media. And I could just tell you have such an awesome personality. And then when I met you in person, I was like, oh my God, duh. She's even cooler in person. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Why don't we just kick it off and let's talk about how you first fell in love with writing. If you remember the very first memory that you had of storytelling or writing. Yeah. Okay. Wait. So I want to say thank you. You're amazing. That was the greatest and I'm into it. Really, it's such a pleasure. You have the most amazing, illustrious guests and I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Thank you. Looping back to the question. In terms of the first time I felt really enthralled by storytelling, I think it might have been Die Hard. I love action movies. I mean, I know that there's probably a more quaint memory or something that could plug in more into what my books are about. But I just remember being whisked away by the action and how immediate everything was and how the visual language of it just pulled you in. I knew that I wanted to tell stories like that. It wasn't that I thought I wanted to make movies or anything. I just wanted to have that effect on somebody, pull them along on this action adventure. That's really grounded, action-oriented, white dude doing his thing and like carrying (laughs) guns and stuff. And that's not actually my thing. The first thing I remembered writing was, and we had talked about this really briefly at the last panel, was I would write stories of parallel dimensions. So this is when I was like 10, 11. And I didn't realize until much later, like, in my adult life that I was writing those stories with characters who looked like me and acted like me and had the same family makeup as mine because that seemed to make more sense. It was putting a family like mine and a girl who looked like me in a contemporary setting for people to read and consume felt like such a stretch because I had never seen any Asians, let alone Filipinos in the media. Whereas I was just like, well, I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to write this fantasy in the woods and there are going to be dwarves in it and a family that looks like mine and Lumpia. That's where my jumping off point was. That's how all of my interests ended up merging is that I loved fantasy. 
I loved speculative fiction, but then I also loved the action and adventure that 80s cinema gave me. Let's say we were in a version of America where we grew up seeing ourselves in the books. Do you think you still would have approached your genre the way you did? I don't know. The thing is, is that that's such a massive hypothetical stretch for my mind to make when I remember the things that I was consuming and how absent anything that looked like me was. It's a very difficult question to answer, but I do wonder if I have a rom-com in me or something like a straight grounded Mm -hmm. rom-com. You know what I mean? I could see you writing rom-com movies. Absolutely. (laughs) I want to write everything. I want to try everything. I think romance scares me the most. Not that I don't have the chops. I do enjoy and I'm proud of my writing. It takes such talent and tension and skill and sense of characters to build a romance from the ground up so that the pacing makes sense and that you believe in the twin art of these two characters. I wonder if I had grown up seeing Asians on television, Asians as heroes, I saw them and they were nerds and they were peripheral characters. The girls were hypersexualized. But if I saw Asians being heroes, maybe I would really try to make a go at writing something fun and contemporary. As it is, I'm always gravitating towards speculative fiction. I'm always looking for ways to create allegory in our political structures. It's weird to be like, I love writing about oppression. It's not that I like that, but it's just a therapeutic exercise to work through and understand kind of structural oppression and our place in it and what it means. And then even when you think of, you know, because I'm American and I was born here, when you think of lineage and structures and the colonialist history of America, how that has touched each of our lives, I like writing about that. Not that there's no place for that in a rom-com, but... It's what's calling you right now. That's true. But also you asking that question, open up and another parallel dimension. You're like blowing my mind right now. My mind is blown right now with this thought exercise of what the world would be like if we saw ourselves. You being an actress as well as all the other, the multitude of artistic things that you do. What's your opinion on that? For me, I feel like if I saw ourselves out there more, then it's as if you can start off being a little bit more choosy with Mm. certain Mm -hmm. roles that you go in for. Yeah. I felt like I wasn't able to be picky and choosy until I was earning my place through certain roles that I may not have chosen otherwise. I definitely think that there would be more choices for us and more flexibility to play around. Yeah. I'm thankful that times are changing now. Oh gosh, I just went off on a tangent. Sorry. Before I forget, because you mentioned about loving action movies. I love Jet Li. Yeah. I loved Jean-Claude Van Damme. I would think that you might be gravitating towards writing scripts or feature films or TV writing. What made you specifically choose novel writing? I was actually a really late reader. I was in remedial classes. I struggled very, very seriously. Once I hit my stride, though, I think it was in the third or the fourth grade where it finally made sense to me, the words on the page and became a narrative. And then from then on, I like could not stop reading. So, I mean, I obviously I consume lots of television, other different media, but I read voraciously from the fourth grade until now. I still read tons or I try to. My writing didn't start off as something where I thought I was going to be a novelist. In my wildest dreams, 
I was a novelist who got published and people read my book. I was very insecure and very, very protective of my writing. I did actually try to write screenplays. I wrote all kinds of things. I wrote poetry, songs. I think that prose fiction was the place in which I found a community where I could share my writing and get feedback in a way that was constructive. When I say that I was protective of my writing and insecure, I mean paralysis would set in. I could not let anyone read it until maybe 25, 26. That's when I was brave enough to join a writer's group. Getting feedback was still really hard. Now, I love the revision process and constructive feedback so much. When people give me feedback, I'm like, no, well, give me the worst of it. Give me like everything. I want to hear it. Now that I've let these ideas go of this solitary genius writer who has the perfect draft in the first draft and you pull a book off of the shelf in a bookstore, it's so easy to feel outclassed. You open it up and you're like, plotting's incredible. The prose is crisp. I can't do this. I can't do this. And so I did that. I had those conversations with myself for decades. And finally, when it all came together and coalesced in something where I could get feedback from a community I trusted, it was in the fiction sphere. When you're saying that you had your community, I know you mentioned that it was around 24, 25 that you felt brave enough to step into a writing group and be open to any critiques. Right before that, were you involved in any other writing workshop? or took a class or two? Or was that the first time you entered any type of writing class? I had taken writing classes before. I used to live in Seattle. So I took writing classes at the Hugo House, which were really, really great. I lived in LA and I would try to connect with other writers via mediums like Craigslist and other things or like friends of friends. I'm not saying that the communities weren't there in other places, but I was not ready to step into it. I had taken fiction writing classes in college. All of that, there were stepping stones up to finding the writers community in Brooklyn that made sense to me and really let me open up where I wanted to be. All of those steps prior to this, I kept showing the same short story because it was the most worked over. I did something similar to that. So I think that was the only thing that I felt really proud of. This was years ago. And I remember it already went through a class and then I brought yeah. it into a different workshop. Just hoping there'd be less critiquing. Right. That's the thing is that one, I was scared to start another project. That paralysis that existed. But also I was just like, okay, well, this is one I have written already. It's workshops. And like you said, maybe the feedback will be more delicate or softer. Or I'll get closer to where I want to be. That's the thing about workshops, right? Is that it's totally subjective and people are coming in with all kinds of different lenses and views and techniques. You can see the theme of perverse fear in terms of finding a community or not even finding a community, being yourself and allowing yourself to make mistakes and allowing yourself that first draft. There's nothing to revise unless you write that first bad draft. And that just took me a very long time to figure out and be comfortable with. Any advice for you to share about finding a safe space, a community, the way you were able to find one? In terms of coming into feedback or like shifting your perspective, I think it's exactly that. It is a shift. It is separating yourself and your self-worth with the draft. The draft is your very first or second or third. I don't know what draft it is, but it's a shot. It's the thing you're trying to say and you're only just barely approaching it. And that's how you have to look at it. You're years away from a finished book and you're years and years away from being published if that's your end goal. This 70,000, 80,000, however long it is, this one draft is a formation of an idea. At the end of the journey, you want it to be more than that. You want it to be crystallized and tight and engaging. There are all these ambitions you have for the draft, but 
right now it's just a draft and it needs to get better. Only way that it will get better is for one, you to be vulnerable to the feedback of trusted peers. I'm going to say that word trusted because I think that's really important. And also open. I think for me, I'm not going to put this on anyone else. I'd forgotten all about this. I was really precious about my work. I think that's super dangerous is to be like, this is what I'm trying to say. And if they don't see it, then they don't get it. That might be true in some cases, but sometimes they don't see it because you're not delivering it in a way. You're not delivering a draft that someone can understand. For me, maybe this happens in all genres, but in terms of speculative fiction, sometimes you're trying to do a creative, interesting pacing thing, or you're trying to do a twist or all of these things. And I would think I was being really clever and interesting. And then I'd get a trusted reader and they'd be like, I just really don't get it. And that is really, really important to listen to. I don't get it. It's hard to read. I don't understand it. There's something to be said about fantasy and sci-fi that makes the reader work for it because the reader is smart. The reader has to work for it to some extent within their means, the information you've given them in terms of the characters and the plot and the background of the story. All of that still needs to be there for them to do the work. And if you haven't met that basic requirement, then a reader is going to tell you that. And I think that's something that you should listen to. So I don't know if that's a shift in perspective for people, but for me, it was the feedback is useful not just because it makes your book better or your characters more engaging. Sometimes it makes it so that you can get to the baseline level of understanding. Coming in with that, knowing that, knowing I want to make this book better. I want to make it so that people understand what the hell is going on and that they care about the characters. Going in with that and then receiving feedback and seeing where does that feedback intersect with my goal. That's how I found my writing group and my writing community. Because I can't say that they all of those relationships panned out. My friend Victoria had spearheaded this writing group in Crown Heights. This is when I was new to Brooklyn. So it was a lot of writers in the neighborhood. So it was easier for us to get together. We did it consistently. It was uh, workshops based off of a lot of workshops that she had done at Sackett and other things. That first workshop was eight weeks long. And I think the only carryover into my next writing group that actually lasted for years, there were only two people or what, there was only one other person from that writing group that transferred over to the next writing group for me. And then, you know, that one went through and some people dropped off and other things happened. But I mean, I'm still in touch with those five or six people and we still read each other's work. And it's been a really long time. And again, not all the feedback is useful. I mean, that's also another important thing too, I think. When you're soliciting feedback, is sometimes... Somebody's just like not going to get it. You're just like, this is a book about a woman of color and this is the allegory and this is the bullshit she has to deal with and this is what I'm trying to do. And then somebody will miss all of that and then make all these suggestions that make it every other story you've always read forever and ever and ever. What about an explosion? Whatever it is, you can tell when someone's like, this is a hard miss in terms of what you're trying to say. And then there are people, they tell you a thing you don't want to hear, but it's not at odds with what you're trying to do. They tell you something about your character doing this baffling thing or this really convenient like movement from plot point A to plot point B, something like that. When the feedback is granular enough and you can identify it as, I might not agree with this, but if you're open to it and you see what they're trying to say, then maybe some version of their feedback can be folded into what you're trying to do. I think that's a key difference. Another thing, too, that I've noticed is sometimes someone will say something about your character or they'll pitch a thing and you don't agree with it, but they're not 
wrong, that thing that they pointed out, there is that black hole in your manuscript, whatever that is, where every time you try to move through it or moved around it, it sucks up a lot of energy and a lot of plot and doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, lots of people can identify that black hole, but not a lot of people can fix it. You are the only one who can fix it. You're the one who has to fix it, actually, because you're the writer. <laughs> Sometimes you'll get multiple points of feedback to do different things with this one piece in the book or in the manuscript. And none of them fit right, but all of them are pointing to the same thing. And that's something to look for, too. In Absolutely. Your I was going to save this for a little bit afterwards, but I feel like we should cover it now. I know that you also just recently left the YA editing. Yeah, yeah. Could you give us a little bit of a background about that side of your world into writing? Yes, thank you. So I just recently left an imprint called Imprint. It's part of the Macmillan Children's Publishing Group. It is a phenomenal place. So they publish Lee Bardugo, Elle McKinney, who's coming out this fall, Christina Perez, Gwendolyn Clare, Cami Garcia, phenomenal writers for all ages. But since we're just talking about YA, I just recently transitioned out of that, but I did love that job. And it was such an incredible experience. And it was nice to come at publishing from another perspective is what's useful to me. Oh, and just like PSA really quickly, be nice to your editors. (laughs) Every editor I know and trust, they're really phenomenal. I can't imagine any author not appreciating editors because everybody (laughs) says editors help take the book from good to great. They're known for that. So I just can't imagine anyone not appreciating that. I'm really, really happy to hear that. I have a great relationship with my editor. I have two. For me, it's such a valuable experience to help somebody shape their book, to bring it to the sharpest points in terms of tightening the plot and making the romance satisfying and the character arc really enthralling. All of that, walking through that with an author is the best thing ever, ever, ever. It's also intensely collaborative and really fun and evolved. But like, you know, it also gets emotional too, because this is someone's baby. But generally what I would do is I got the manuscript on submission. That's when I decided if I wanted to take it to acquisitions and try to buy it. I would read it once through and figure out what I thought the author's vision was, how I felt about the characters and the arcs, and if there was a romance or some sort of central relationship, how that played in and enriched it. And so I would get on the phone with an author we would see if we got along and if we had a shared vision for where we wanted to take it. We would nerd out about the book for like half an hour and figure out if we were the right pair to take this book to its completion. And then from there, I would take it to acquisitions. McMillan's the nicest house ever. Everyone's so kind there. It would always make me really nervous because you were basically taking this manuscript, asking a bunch of people to read it, and then saying in front of 50 people, I like this book. This is my taste. This is what I want to buy. This is a thing that I think we can sell. Acquisition, from what I'm understanding, is when you go and you pitch hard for the story that you believe in so that your company can buy it or bid on it. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And in the room are salespeople, marketing people, publicity people. It's different in all different houses. That Generally, it's sales there. And that's what you do. You pitch it. You send out the manuscript early and then hopefully people read it. And then you tell them why you loved it and what you think of the author and why you think it would perform in the marketplace. So you're a total businesswoman at 
at the same time. It didn't really hit me. I thought editors are the magical god fairies <laughs> who come in, sprinkle their magic and turn your manuscript into something that's readable. I didn't realize that you also not only had to do that for the authors, but you also have to pitch it. Let me go over the, the steps in my head. So let's say just a random example. Let's say one of the listeners, she's writing her manuscript. She's ready. So she queries a literary agent. Then a literary agent loves her work, takes her on. They work together. And then sometimes from what I hear, agents may be hands-on with your manuscript to improve it or not. The literary agent takes that manuscript to editors like you. After that, then you go over it. Then you see if it's something that you love. And if you guys have the same vision and let's say the listener is like, oh my gosh, yes, Rhoda, I love your vision. That's exactly what I was trying to do. Please work your magic on my stuff. And then you're like, okay, I'm down. Then do you go through and work on it before pitching it or you bring it point blank as how it is before you even edit? Yeah, I have to bring it as is only because one, your time as an editor is limited. That's not their first draft, obviously. But it is, as far as I'm concerned, I won't speak for anyone else, that's raw-ish material. Even if it's been revised, we haven't worked together. I do want people to see what the natural state of the prose is like. Again, and not just the prose, but how they relate to other characters and the choreography and all that stuff, because it's mating a a romantic interest, too. You can't plan for their potential. You, You have to like their. Yes, that's true. That's true. It sounded like there were a lot of people in the room when you are doing the acquisition. That's a bit intimidating. So I'm just imagining you walking in with that booklet of a manuscript into an office. Sounds so much to me like a creator pitching their show. And that's freaking nerve wracking. I know it used to make me really nervous. By the end of it, I had gotten not the hang of it, but it made me less nervous. And I would go in a little more confidently, but it's still a lot. Like you said, it's not just editing, it's business strategy. And it's also a lot of public speaking. Yes. It's like it's combined, like definitely public speaking combined with being a salesperson when you think about it. So you got to know how to pitch correctly. I didn't realize all of that goes into the work of an editor as well. You've got so much on your plate. I don't know how you do it. That's incredible because what a great skill to have overall in life. That is really, really sweet. And I appreciate it. I loved that job. I loved it so much. The list, the authors I worked with, the people, the editors I worked with were all just phenomenal. I thought there were a lot of skill sets that I strengthened while I was there on top of editing. But also I think that working with those other writers made me a better writer. Now you have the skills as an editor. So are you a able to see your work with an editor's eyes after you finish it as a writer through the first round of the manuscript. Is that a role you're able to take on for your own work? It might be a combination of those two things, which is I can take it so far by myself, but it's almost like therapists need to go to other therapists too at the end of the day. But I think what you said is really important, which is that can you look at it as an editor after you're done writing it? And the answer is yes. Again, I can't really take it as far as I would like to, or as far as hopefully I've taken other manuscripts that I've worked on that weren't mine. The important thing is I can't edit while I write. That was a huge barrier to get over for me too, as well. On top of the insecurity and the vulnerability and the fear of people reading what I wrote was that I couldn't even get through a whole chapter. I would write like a paragraph and then I would spend an hour revising the paragraph or two hours. Like I was a monster in me <laughs> that would strive for these perfectly crafted sentences. And yeah. it's just like, they don't exist. Just write the damn thing. <gasps> that actually helped my writing a lot was to let go of the editor part of me and that just write the manuscript. Just write it, write it, write it, write it, write it. It's super messy. 
as fast as you can, which like still isn't that fast for me. Just something that you could work with. I can take a macro perspective after the whole thing is written, but I still need tons and tons of help. Got it. Now, in my head, I'm still remembering that you said at 24 and 25, that's right when you started to feel more comfortable with the writing group to be open mm-hmm. and to be less protective of your work. How old were you when you got into the world of editing? I think I was 28 when I started editing, like in publishing. At 24, 25, did you already have an idea like, hey, just found out about this cool position as an editor. I would be open to that in the near future. Or were you not even aware of what editors did or even the roles of editors yet? I would have loved to have been an editor at that age. But I mean, that's another thing about publishing is that so I grew up in Los Angeles and I didn't know that publishing was a thing. I mean, obviously, I knew it was a thing because I was reading books. I didn't know that you could be an editor growing up. Editing sounded like something that people did at magazines. I never dreamed of working at publishing houses. It seems much more now. I think the houses are getting better at reaching out to all kinds of different people and all kinds of different communities. But at the time, it felt like a very East Coast thing to work at a publishing house. And uh, the reason my entry point into YA was that when I worked in Seattle, I worked with homeless teens at a zine workshop. So I would help them develop their own personal writing projects. And sometimes they'd be autobiographical, but sometimes they'd just be about BMX bikes or their favorite movie. And then we would work to sell them to local bookstores. At that time, I wanted to find books that I thought would appeal to them, like YA books. And this was right at the height of Twilight and things like that. And Twilight's a super fun read, but I also wanted a lot of these kids were queer. They were kids of color. They had dangerous situations at home. It was a very different demographic than some of the very, very popular, notable YA stuff that was coming out at the time. I was trying to find more like mirror books for them. And that's when I found Cindy Pond and Melinda Lowe's um, Diversity in YA Tumblr, which saved my life and uh, introduced me to a ton of other YA writers. That's when I got really, really into YA. That's when I knew, oh, that would be fantastic. This is someone's job. People do this. People put this together. So I for sure wanted to be an editor at that point. But the entry point is really tough. Now it's even more competitive and the starting salary is like really low. Can you walk us through how you figured out how to break into that side of the industry? I wish that I could say that I was strategic and I gamed it and had this long term plan, but I didn't. I never do. So What happened was when I was moving from Seattle, I knew I was moving to New York or to Brooklyn. And so I was looking up book jobs, entry level stuff. I mean, keep in mind, I had had like a couple of careers before this. So I was in social work at the time. But before that, I worked in tech and I was a copywriter. I was all over the place and I had a weird resume. But I was applying for these jobs because I was just like, I want to get into publishing. And then uh, I found on Craigslist a internship posting for a packager called Paper Lantern Lit, which is now Glastown. I called. I got on the phone with the founder. So Alexa Hillier and I talked on the phone and we just talked about what my experience was, what I wanted to do and why I wanted to work in publishing and why I was curious about the whole thing. That internship turned into a full-time job and I became their first employee. I was an assistant editor and I stayed there for four or five years, which is great. So I was doing packaging. I was developing YA from the ground up and collaborating with authors to bring thoughts and those characters to life. And then, uh, 
And then I transitioned from Paper Lantern to Macmillan Children's. And that's how I did it. Again, it was kind of an unusual entry point. And I don't know if the publisher at Imprint at Macmillan Children's, her name's Erin Stein. She's really fantastic and super smart. To the audience, you should sub to her because she's really, really smart and knows what she's doing. She wants to do something different with her imprint and wanted a skill set that was maybe different than had an editor who had been kind of homegrown, had come up in the rank through the publishing houses and did that whole thing, which is also really admirable and super cool. But I think because my resume was diversified and a little random, there were lots of different things that she was interested in doing and wanted that for the position. That was my entry point. Publishing is hard to break into. And I'm not saying it's not worth it, but it's tough. And the salary, again, at an entry level is kind of rough if you don't have family support or other things going on. Absolutely. Once you got into Macmillan, did they ask for any examples of writing? If you're applying for a job as an assistant editor or an associate, that's super common. It's called an editorial test where they give you the manuscript and have you write a letter or diagnose different things that you would want to do or different places you might want to take it. But no, at Imprint, I did not. And Aaron had read my first book at that point as well. Okay, gotcha. I guess also perfect timing too, because you had so much already under your belt. Are you able to share a little bit about why you transitioned out? So you're so you're currently still editing, just not in the YA department. Am I getting that correct? I'm going to be an editor, but it's going to be pretty different. I'm joining, you know, Lonely Planet? Yes, yes, for sure. They started a North American kids team, super, super small. So I'm going to be working on all nonfiction books for you young readers. Heavily illustrated. I'm so excited. Congratulations. Thank you. I made the transition mostly because I wanted to, there were a couple of reasons. I wanted to make a little bit of time for my own writing. It became really demanding to make the space for it just because an editor's job is, you know, you care so much about the books. You care a lot about the projects. And so every estimate you give for yourself in terms of, I'm going to finish this editorial letter. I'm going to read these submissions by this time. They kind of slip away. Time becomes relative. (laughs) I wanted to reclaim some time for my own writing. And two, I think this might be a way to be more engaged in the YA community. Mm. They're a great community. I go to the things. I have a lot of colleagues and friends who are fantastic. But to be involved in it intimately... There is not a conflict of interest, but when you're an editor coming to these events, it's different than when you're just like, I'm just purely here as an author and this I am representing me and my work and that's it. And I also hope that I'll just have more time to like, I want to organize a reading salon in Brooklyn and do a whole thing. Like there's just, I think stepping away from it will actually help me become more engaged in the community. I could totally see that. Uh, I'm excited for you. This is a great new chapter for you. I would love for you to give us a snapshot of Empress of a Thousand Skies and then Blood of a Thousand Stars. Yeah, definitely. So Empress of a Thousand Skies, it's about a princess who survives an assassination attempt on the eve of her coronation to become a queen. The public doesn't know that she survived. So throughout the book, she's trying to figure out who attempted the assassination. Well, she knows. She's basically looking for that man so she can kill him. He's also responsible for the death of her family. She's an orphan. And then there's another point of view. His name is Alyosha, and he is a soldier and a former refugee. He is the one who is accused of her death because, again, the public thinks that she died in that assassination. He goes into hiding as a fugitive. He is a Black character. I think that I try to work a lot around why we so easily, as a society, pin certain crimes or push 
criminal ideas onto certain communities. I was trying to work with that. This is um, pretty heavy sci-fi, so they're moving between planets and things like that, and uh, futuristic. There's also an element of memory. It's called a cube. So it's a piece of technology that's embedded into one's neck to kind of connect to one's spinal cord and stores. It works a kind of high-powered smartphone would too. But in addition to that, it stores memories. They're both dealing with memory in their own way because they are both without their families. And Re, the princess, has these almost saccharine memories of her family. They're, she only wants to remember the good things and she idealizes everything every single moment and every single person. And she thinks that her father, the emperor, was perfect. Alyosha was a similarly painful past, although very different. And Alyosha chooses not to engage with his memories. In fact, when organic ones surface without being recalled, he gets really upset and tries to push it down and keep it away and approaches the whole thing with a deep stoicism because there is this kind of element of both of them trying to outrun their past and engaging with their past memories in really different ways. So Re and her planet are Asian inflected. The community that she comes from is based off of a blend of cultural traditions of of the Philippines, particularly like the Northern Island and Taiwan. Why specifically Taiwan? I had spent a lot of time there. Oh, cool. What were you doing in Taiwan? I have a girlfriend who is a really, really good friend from high school who's Taiwanese. Her family is from Taiwan. So I've been there a few times. God, it was so magical and so cool. And also I'm intrigued with all of Asia. Honestly, those are the only two places that I've been able to go. But had I been to other places and like seen culturally what was going on firsthand, like I'm sure that I will at some point base certain communities and cultures off of things. But I guess I'm intrigued because now I'm like going to do this boring history lesson. But <laughs> the Philippines gained its independence right around that time. That's when they were figuring out in China, there was a big clash between the communists and the nationalists. When the nationalists were defeated, they headed to Taiwan. That's what they made. Taiwan is democratic. Mainland China is communist. So that's all of that, that influx of what was happening was all around the same time and was all touched by U.S. imperialism. I have really, really been intrigued by both cultures because of kind of their parallel trajectories from this moment right after World War II. Also, that they're island nations. When you think about nationhood in Asia and like those, all those islands out there, it could have gone so many different ways. The Philippines could have broken up and been subsumed by like other nations nearby. They could still be colonies of different countries. So many things could have happened and that was our trajectory, but it could have been totally different. That's where I was coming from in terms of writing what Rhee's planet was like, is that it has elements of this hyper post-Catholic island nation that is experiencing colonialism with the kind of new waivers coming in. And then you also have the, the ancestor worship and the lineage and the Buddhist practices of Taiwan. I wanted to blend the two. I love that. I, it was so particularly fascinating to me because of my heritage and my parents. I appreciated the history lesson, by the way. Yeah. I was like, oh, yes, girl, school me. We have to do like an addendum afterwards where we add the name of the nationalist leader who went to Taiwan. It's really bugging me that I can't remember That's it. a good point. When we get the show notes done, maybe that's when I can also do some yeah. research on it. <laughs> you also mentioned right before that you wanted to point out why specific communities were getting the shit end of the stick. Yeah. Was there one specific incident that prompted you to write Empress of a Thousand Skies? My short answer is no. I wouldn't say that there was one specific political instance or anything like that. Rhea as a character came first. I knew I wanted to write about a young girl 
who was doubted by virtue of being young and a girl. The fact that she's empress, that she comes from wealth, that there are other things happening. It intersected with the fact that she was not ever going to be trusted and was set up for failure from the very beginning. And that's what I wanted to do. And then when Re came to me, then I started thinking about how those elements and like why I wanted to write her could manifest themselves in another character. And that's when Ali came to me. Aliosha, who's so funny and sweet and cute, but kind of has this really dark past. Another thing about Ali is that he's from a planet called Reita, which was destroyed at some point um, in the past. And so he is passing as collusion, which is another planet. It's not a one-to-one comparison in terms of passing for white or anything like that. I did want there to be a hierarchy and an element of shame and intensity and really understanding that your heritage is going to be perceived a certain way and kind of making the decision that it would just be quote unquote easier to pass rather than to be this is where I'm from and this is what happened and deal with the fallout as it comes. That's where Allie came from. And a lot of things were happening while I was writing Allie. I don't want to list a bunch of things and try to commodify human suffering and like a lot of terrible things that have happened in the news and be like, well, that's what my book is about. I will say that a bazillion things were happening in the news at the time and they're still happening. I was just going to say they're not stopping either. Yeah. Both of their past were influenced a lot by what was happening in the world while I was writing it. Knowing that it was a lot of world events that were big influence of it, how is the research process like? I always read history, like in my free time, if I can do it, I will. A lot of that inspiration and passion and what I wanted to do and the political dynamics I wanted to create, I had been researching them for several years. I was reading them. And then I couldn't stop reading the news. It was like a problem. It was compulsively reading the news. So, I mean, that went into a lot of it. I mean, I would say that I have a world leader verging on dictator, kind of an idiot. Lots of things were pulled from that. I would say my deepest dive in research was the technology, was to figure out where that went. Like you said, there's the cube, but there are also the ships, the way things moved in space, how bodies might be different depending on the gravity of the planet they were from. All of those things. I did a lot, a lot of research on that. It would be the simplest thing. It'd be like, oh, okay, I'll write a line. And I'm like, oh, the sand is falling a little bit slowly because of gravity. And then I would just go on Wikipedia and then buy all these Kindle books and start reading about gravity. I ended up hiring a consultant, a friend of a friend who is a physicist to read my first book. He identified maybe a dozen different places in the book that could be vetted more scientifically. Like this is possible because it has this initial research to back it up. This is a little bit of a stretch, but okay. He was like, this is just like straight up fantasy. So we would go through and I would try to derive more from like the existing science and like what we could do with it. I would have certain word counts or certain deadlines that I'd want to hit. And then I would like see how I would eat up all of my hours just reading on this thing, you know, be like, oh my God, the desire to get it really, really right. Versus the stress that you're not going to make the word count. All of that. It was really intense. Thank you. What is something that you feel most proud about in your career? And I know that you've had so much going on, whether it's writing, editing, anything in between. What was the proudest moment that you would love to share with us? So Rhea and Aliosha in the first book, they are still in the second book with a third character. Her name is Kara. And 
Writing the second book was really hard for about a million reasons. Everyone, lots of authors attest to how writing their second published novel or their second in a series, no matter what series it is, is always really difficult. Empress, the first one, was about building something and going wild and shooting your shot and creating these arcs and creating these worlds and researching tech. Whereas book two was like figuring out how to close out these arcs and make the relationships hopefully satisfying to give them closure at that point they had felt like friends in the way that you need to maintain those relationships with your friends it was the same thing with the characters so finishing book two was a highlight for sure if only because i had always struggled with kara's pov maybe i still did maybe readers will think that but i know that she was the hardest to write and maybe the most unlikable because sometimes I think she's the most like me. They're all versions of me. All three of them are for sure. Kara with her imposter syndrome, with her flightiness, with her desire to run away one second and to be here and present the next. All of that felt very much like me. And so writing her and writing the way that book two ended, I have a lot of feelings about book two, but I'm really proud of the end. And so I would say that like writing that was a highlight. And also, I can't even say that it was just like I wrote and I turned it in and I was done because I actually rewrote the last page after the first pass. So if you read the art, the last page is different than when you read the hardcover. Oh. <laughs> and, and it's because there were like things that I still wanted to do. Kara is the last page. I was just pursuing her feverishly in my dreams, trying to get it where I wanted it to be. Wow. Now that opens the whole floodgate of questions. <laughs> yeah. I'm always really fascinated about the emotional side and how you get through and push through the way you described it sounded so difficult for me. I'm like, oh gosh, who would I be able to call up for support in a situation like that? Who are my people? We were just talking about trusted people in our writing circles. If I were in your shoes, I would just think, who would I be calling? Who would I be reaching out to? What would I be doing in order to push me forward to get me through to the next step for progress? Do you have people they pass changes in your drafts to? Because there's some authors who might need cheerleaders and there's other authors who forget about cheerleading, just freaking tear up my drafts and like, give me those critiques. You know what I mean? So what was that like to get you there when you're finally proud of what you came up with? So two people immediately come to mind. One is a good friend and editor. Her name is Alexa Waco. She's been so great on world building and world building and like thoughtful on the politics and stuff. So she's she's one of them. But, but first and foremost is my sister. My sister is my first and last reader. And I do mean she's my first reader because she reads every draft. How does she have time to read all your drafts? All right. Maybe it's an exaggeration to be like she reads every draft. She read at least three drafts of both my books. I wrote more than three drafts, but like still, that's like a lot. Like nobody reads wow, that much. Okay. She is awesome. I know. I know. Yeah. I dedicated my first book Aww. to her. Yeah, that's so sweet. She's the best. She's the best. But also she's the worst because she tells you when something's not working and she like really tells you. I, if I reread some of these text messages, I think people listening would cry. They'd be like, what? And I'd be like, yeah, because she's busy too, right? So she like yeah. manages to read the shit, but she's like super busy. So sometimes she'll just fire off there. So I don't, this isn't a spoiler, but like somebody dies at the end of book two. Mm -hmm. And my sister was just like, it didn't make me cry yet. And that was her feedback. She's like, it needs Damn, to be more yo. intense. And I was like, that's harsh. I know. It was like via text. And I was like, what? How am I supposed to? 
That's like not actionable feedback is like, make me cry. But I was like, but I tried. I was like, okay, you know, or she'll tell me when characters aren't working. I mean, she's really key. And like, she'll notice when I take things out of drafts and she'll be like, I think you should put this thing back in. Or like, I think it was good that you took this thing out. Like she notices she's really intense and she's a godsend and that's her thing. So you're I mean, so yeah, lucky my sister. to have her. I know. But the wild thing too is, is now she has a toddler and she's pregnant and I'm just like, so are you going to keep reading for me? Like what's happening? <laughs> you should exchange like her babysitter, babysitter rates. Yes. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> or you just babysit for her and then there we go. I would love that. She's in LA though. We're oh, across. Oh no. I know. That's We're so really far sad. from each other. Are you going to head out to LA anytime soon? I think about it constantly. Every time I'm there, I'm like, maybe. And then when I get back, I'm like, I'm not moving to L.A. I'm so settled here. I like my life in Brooklyn. There's a lot going on. But I think about all the time because she's got two little ones now. And and my whole family's out there still. I know you're born and raised in Los Angeles. That's why I'm like, I feel like people usually settle back where they were raised. So that's why I was wondering if ever you would see yourself back in L.A. It's totally cool that not yet, at least not now. Even getting back on the West Coast would be a lot easier for me and for my family. Because when I lived in Seattle. It's a quick flight. It's a quick flight. And also you're in the same time zone. So like talking on the phone was easy. Now she has kiddos that go to sleep at a certain time. I'm just like, oh my God, are we ever going to talk? You're lucky that you have both of those ladies in your life. Thank you for delving into that. And I also love that we honestly did touch about family. I feel like a huge part of this podcast, even though we're about storytellers and storytelling overall, I do feel like who we are as people and the people who have shaped us is an even bigger part of the show. So I'm thrilled we got to see a little sneak peek into your big sis. So thank you for that. And big shout out to her for being awesome and the best editor ever. Let me squeeze in the last big question. What are some small manageable steps that you would advise for them to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? Not editing yourself when you write will help you hit a word count. Setting realistic word counts per week, I think is the way to go. I know everyone says write every day. And I say that too. I think you should write every day. But I know that's not a reality for all listeners. And that's totally fine. Daniel Jose Older talks a lot about that. You're not on anyone else's schedule, but your own. You have to fit it in because you have to sleep and like do other things. But I do think that you need to write pretty consistently because you're going to forget what your characters are doing. Even if you're writing third person, you still have to be hella intimate with these characters. You have to know exactly what they're doing and feeling and what what the urgency is in their lives and what they're reticent about and what they're scared of. You walk away for two or three days and it's hard to get back in it. And that's the truth. I would say writing consistently throughout the week, if not every day, and putting aside an editing day or days. So you write all the bad words that you have and you hit your word count and then you go and you revisit it and that's when you edit it. That's what I would do if I was going to do that. That was damn good. Now, let us know any recommended books that you love or anything that's helped you, whether it's craft writing books or novels that changed your life. So I cannot recommend this enough. It's called the Broken Earth Trilogy. The first one is the fifth season. The second is the Obelisk Gate. And the third is the Stone Sky. And that's by N.K. Jemison. They're fucking phenomenal. Made me cry so hard several times. Made me gasp. Made me yell, just be like, oh, fuck, you know, like, <laughs> I was just like, I should have seen that coming, but I didn't. <laughs> she's so gifted. Basically, it's this beautifully, terrifyingly written kind of social allegory in a fantasy world. And 
you're like, it's fantasy, it's fantasy, it's fantasy. And then at the end of the first book, you're like, this took a sci-fi turn. And it's about mothers and daughters and the things people have to hide from themselves and from everyone else. I mean, it is about the biggest things in life. It's so phenomenal. I cannot recommend it enough. I'm so happy you mentioned that book because it hit me as soon as you said N.K. Jemison in 88 Cups of Tea Facebook group. We did a holiday swap the first time this past holiday. And I noticed multiple different people in our holiday swap sent that book to their partners. So I'm so happy you mentioned that. It's so, so good. What else? I read a collection of short stories called Her Body and Other Parties. Carmen Maria Machado. Yes, we had her on. Oh, I haven't listened to that one yet. Oh, my God. God. Which was your favorite short story? Do you remember? The Husband Sitch. Me too. I mean, of course. Yeah. They're all amazing. They're all amazing. But what's wild about that is that when I get books or short stories, for some reason, I read them out of order. I've always done that. And so I read all of them. And then I read the first story last, which is The Husband Stitch. And I was like, oh my God. It's like the only story. with I think a straight relationship as well. It blew my mind. It's so eerie and gorgeous. I'll never forget it. Never. It's just so good. She's just a damn genius. I know. We'll have those books listed on your show notes page Mm -hmm. and let us know the final wrap up. Where can we find you on social media to say hello? Oh, yes. Hello. Come say hi to me on Twitter and Instagram. I have the same handle. It's Rhoda B. That's my name. R-H-O-D-A and then B-E-E, like the honeybee. How cute. Rhoda, you've been so awesome. Thank you again for having me. And thank you everyone for listening. It means the world to me. And that wraps up our episode with Rhoda Vesa. Rhoda, you are awesome. I love your uplifting energy and so enjoyed our conversation. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening. And as always, please say hi to Rhoda over on Twitter at Rhoda B. That's R-H-O-D-A. D-A-B-E-E. And don't forget, Rhoda is taking over our Instagram stories today. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea to catch a glimpse of Rhoda's life as a writer and how she manages that around her day job as an editor. For a list of resources mentioned in her episode, head over to Rhoda's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Rhoda dash While you're on our site, check out the brand new featured article section that we just launched this week. It's a brand new addition to 88 Cups of Tea. Many of you have requested for even more content, especially blog posts, and it's finally here. For our inaugural piece, the wonderful Sarah Holland, author of Everless, wrote about the querying mistake we're all making. It's a really inspiring and eye-opening piece written from Sarah's perspective as both an author and a literary agent on how to approach querying. To read Sarah's article, head over to 88cupsoftea.com and click on the featured article link on our main page. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask you for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much for helping us grow our community. And if you haven't yet, don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow storytellers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. 
Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.